0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. For three decades, researchers hunted in vain for new elementary particles that would have explained why nature looks the way it does. As physicists confront that failure, they're re-examining a long-standing assumption that big stuff consists of smaller stuff. That's next.
1: Imagine you're in a lab where you've synthesized ancient DNA sequences and spliced them into modern bacteria just to see how they'd react.
2: They needed each other, but they didn't want each other. (laughs) So, you know, it was like a very complicated relationship unfolding in front of me.
1: This isn't Jurassic Park or some sci fi movie. I'm Steve Strogatz, and this is The Joy of Why. A new podcast from Quanta Magazine that takes you into some of the biggest unanswered mysteries in science and math today. Join me on the Joy of Why as we explore these questions. We may not have all the answers yet, but I'm pretty sure the curiosity to figure them out is in our DNA. Subscribe to the Joy of Why wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every other Thursday.
0: the structure of scientific revolutions, the philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn observed that scientists spend long periods taking small steps. They pose and solve puzzles while collectively interpreting all data within a fixed worldview or theoretical framework, which Kuhn called a paradigm. Sooner or later, though, facts crop up that clash with the reigning paradigm crisis ensues. The scientists wring their hands, re-examining their assumptions, and eventually make a revolutionary shift to a new paradigm, a radically different and truer understanding of nature. Then, incremental progress resumes. For several years, the particle physicists who studied nature's fundamental building blocks have been in a textbook Kuhnian crisis. The crisis became undeniable in 2016, when, despite a major upgrade, the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, in Geneva still hadn't conjured up any of the new elementary particles that theorists had been expecting for decades. The swarm of additional particles would have solved a major puzzle about an already known one, the famed Higgs boson. The puzzle is called the hierarchy problem. It asks why the Higgs boson is so lightweight, a hundred million billion times less massive than the highest energy scales that exist in nature. The Higgs mass seems unnaturally dialed down relative to these higher energies. It's as if huge numbers in the underlying equation that determines its value all miraculously cancel out the extra particles would have explained the tiny Higgs mass, restoring what physicists call naturalness to their equations. But after the LHC became the third and biggest collider to search in vain for them, it seemed that the very logic about what's natural in nature might be wrong. At first, the community despaired. Isabel Garcia-Garcia is a particle theorist at the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She was a grad student at the time.
2: Obviously, as time went on, this expectation somehow died out a little bit, and you could feel the pessimism, I think, especially in some of the perhaps more senior members of the community, people who had invested a lot of time and had great, very creative ideas, being very disappointed.
0: Not only had the 10 billion dollar proton smasher failed to answer a 40-year-old question, but the very beliefs and strategies that had long guided particle physics could no longer be trusted. People wondered more loudly than before whether the universe is simply unnatural, the product of fine-tuned mathematical cancellations. Perhaps there's a multiverse of universes, all with randomly dialed Higgs masses and other parameters, and we find ourselves here only because our universe's peculiar properties foster the formation of atoms, stars and planets, and therefore life. This anthropic argument, though possibly right, is frustratingly untestable. Nathaniel Craig, a theoretical physicist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, says many particle physicists migrated to other research areas where the puzzle hasn't gotten as hard as the hierarchy problem. Some of those who remained set to work scrutinizing decades-old assumptions. They started thinking anew about the striking features of nature, that seem unnaturally fine-tuned. Both the Higgs boson's small mass and a seemingly unrelated case, one that concerns the unnaturally low energy of space itself. Here's Garcia Garcia again.
2: I think like the really fundamental problems are still problems of naturalness. And I think gravity potentially has a lot to teach us and a lot of surprises could come from these type of
0: considerations. Researchers are increasingly zeroing in on what they see as a weakness in the conventional reasoning about naturalness. It rests on a seemingly benign assumption, one that has been baked into scientific outlooks since ancient Greece. Big stuff consists of smaller, more fundamental stuff. This idea is known as reductionism. Nima Arkani-Hamed is a theorist at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He says the reductionist paradigm is hardwired into the naturalness problem. Now, a growing number of particle physicists think naturalness problems and the lack of results at the Large Hadron Collider might be tied to reductionism's breakdown. Arkani-Hamed wonders if it could change the rules of the game. In a slew of recent papers, researchers have thrown reductionism to the wind. They're exploring novel ways in which big and small distance scales might conspire, producing values of parameters that look unnaturally fine-tuned from a reductionist perspective. Here's Garcia Garcia again. It is a time where I feel like we're on to
2: something profound. It certainly feels like we're at some crossroads. Some people choose to call it crisis. I feel like that is kind of pessimistic. I don't feel that way about it. The current paradigm, right? Like a standard model, we know how successful this has been over an incredible range of length scales. But we do have observations like dark matter, neutrino masses, for example, that directly contradict this paradigm. Not only this, there are many features that a standard model in particular does not and cannot explain. One of them are questions of naturalness. Very smart people have tried to make progress and they haven't. But there is something different about the time now. And I feel like what is different now is that we have this huge range of experiments in particle physics that is nothing like what we had
0: before. The Large Hadron Collider did make one critical discovery. In 2012, it finally struck upon the Higgs boson. The Higgs is the keystone of the 50-year-old set of equations known as the Standard Model of Particle Physics, which describes the 17 known elementary particles. The discovery of the Higgs confirmed a riveting story that's written in the Standard Model Equations. Moments after the Big Bang, an entity that permeates space called the Higgs field suddenly became infused with energy. This Higgs field crackles with Higgs bosons, particles that possess mass because of the field's energy. As electrons, quarks, and other particles move through space, they interact with Higgs bosons, and in this way they acquire mass as well. After the standard model was completed in 1975, its architects almost immediately noticed a problem. When the Higgs gives other particles mass, they give it right back. The particle masses shake out together. Physicists can write an equation for the Higgs boson's mass that includes terms from each particle it interacts with. All the massive standard model particles contribute terms to the equation, but these aren't the only contributions. The Higgs should also mathematically mingle with heavier particles, up to and including phenomena at the Planck scale. That's an energy level associated with the quantum nature of gravity, black holes, and the Big Bang. Planck scale phenomena should contribute terms to the Higgs mass that are huge, roughly a hundred million billion times larger than the actual Higgs mass. You might expect the Higgs boson to be as heavy as they are, thereby beefing up other elementary particles as well. That would leave particles too heavy to form atoms, and the universe would be empty. For the Higgs to depend on enormous energies yet end up so light, you have to assume that some of the Planckian contributions to its mass are negative while others are positive, and that they're all dialed to just the right amounts to exactly cancel out. Unless there's some reason for this cancellation, it seems ludicrous. It's about as unlikely as air currents and table vibrations counteracting each other to keep a pencil balanced on its tip. This is the kind of fine-tuned cancellation that physicists call unnatural. Within a few years, physicists found a tidy solution, supersymmetry, a hypothesized doubling of nature's elementary particles. A boson is one of two types of particles. The other type is a fermion. Supersymmetry says that every boson has a partner fermion, and vice versa. Bosons and fermions contribute positive and negative terms to the Higgs mass, respectively, so if these terms always come in pairs, they'll always cancel. The search for supersymmetric partner particles began at the Large Electron-Positron Collider in the 1990s. Researchers assumed the particles were just a little bit heavier than their standard model partners, requiring more raw energy to materialize. So they accelerated particles to nearly light speed, smashed them together, and looked for heavy apparitions among the debris. Meanwhile, another naturalness problem surfaced. The fabric of space even when devoid of matter, seems as if it should sizzle with energy, the net activity of all the quantum fields coursing through it. When particle physicists add up all the presumptive contributions to the energy of space, they find that, as with the Higgs mass, injections of energy coming from Planck-scale phenomena should blow it up. Albert Einstein showed that the energy of space, which he dubbed the cosmological constant, has a gravitationally repulsive effect. It causes space to expand faster and faster. If space were infused with a Planckian density of energy, the universe would have ripped itself apart moments after the Big Bang. But this hasn't happened. Instead, cosmologists observe that space's expansion is accelerating only slowly, indicating that the cosmological constant is small. Measurements in 1998 pegged its value as a million, 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 million times lower than the Planck energy. Again, it seems all those enormous energy injections and extractions in the equation for the cosmological constant perfectly cancel out, leaving space eerily placid. Both of these big naturalness problems were evident by the late 1970s, but for decades, physicists treated them as unrelated. The cosmological constant problem seemed potentially related to mysterious quantum aspects of gravity, since the energy of space is detected solely through its gravitational effect. Nima Arkhani-Hamed says the hierarchy problem looked more like a dirty little details problem, the kind of issue that, like two or three other problems of the past, would ultimately reveal a few missing puzzle pieces. John Judice, the head of the theory division at CERN, calls this unnatural lightness the sickness of the Higgs. It was nothing a few supersymmetry particles at the Large Hadron Collider couldn't cure. In hindsight, the two naturalness problems seem more like symptoms of a deeper issue. Garcia-Garcia says it seems like we're limited by current theory. It's useful to think about how these problems
2: come about. Things like the electroweak hierarchy problem or the cosmological constant problem, they are a problem that arises in part because of the tools we're using to try to answer these questions. The way we're trying to understand certain features
0: of our universe. Physicists come by their funny way of tallying contributions to the Higgs mass and cosmological constant honestly. The calculation method reflects the strange nesting doll structure of the natural world. Zoom in on something and you'll discover that it's actually a lot of smaller things. What looks from far away like a galaxy is really a collection of stars. Each star is many atoms. An atom further dissolves into hierarchical layers of subatomic parts. As you zoom into shorter distance scales, you see heavier and more energetic elementary particles and phenomena. It's a profound link between high energies and short distances that explains why a high-energy particle collider acts like a microscope on the universe. The connection between high energies and short distances has many avatars throughout physics. For instance, quantum mechanics says every particle is also a wave. The more massive the particle, the shorter its associated wavelength. Another way to think about it is that energy has to cram together more densely to form smaller objects. Physicists refer to low-energy, long-distance physics as the IR and high-energy, short-distance physics as the UV, drawing an analogy with infrared and ultraviolet wavelengths of light. In the 1960s and 70s, Particle physics titans Kenneth Wilson and Steven Weinberg put their finger on what's so remarkable about nature's hierarchical structure. It allows us to describe goings-on at some big IR scale of interest without knowing what's really happening at more microscopic UV scales. For instance, you can model water with a hydrodynamic equation that treats it as a smooth fluid, glossing over the complicated dynamics of its H2O molecules. The hydrodynamic equation includes a term representing water's viscosity, a single number, which can be measured at IR scales that summarizes all those molecular interactions happening in the UV. Physicists say IR and UV scales decouple which lets them effectively describe aspects of the world without knowing what's going on deep down at the Planck scale. That's the ultimate UV scale, corresponding to a billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a centimeter, or 10 billion billion gigaelectron volts of energy, where the very fabric of space-time probably dissolves into something else. Ricardo Ritazzi, a theoretical physicist at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Lausanne, says we can do physics because we can remain ignorant about what happens at short distances. Wilson and Weinberg separately developed pieces of the framework that particle physicists use to model different levels of our nesting doll world. It's known as effective field theory, and it's in the context of effective field theory, or EFT, that naturalness problems arise. An EFT models a system, say a bundle of protons and neutrons, over a certain range of scales. Patrick Draper is a professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign.
1: The basic idea of effective field theory is more general than field theory. And it's an intuitive concept that if you want to study physics at one length scale, like you know a meter or something then you can do that efficiently and accurately by setting all physical length scales that are a lot shorter than that to zero and all the ones that are a lot longer than that to infinity and just focus on things that are going on around the meter scale. So for example, uh, Galileo, looking at his pendulums, he didn't have to know what the size of the proton is or the size of an atom that could be sent to zero effectively. That could be ignored. He didn't have to know that the observable universe has a finite size. That could be set to infinity. If Galileo had needed to know atomic physics in order to model the motion of a pendulum, we would never have got there. So this is a very powerful idea that there's a separation of scales or a sort of decoupling that happens. In field theory, a little more precisely, what that means is If you want to write down a field theory that describes physics at one energy or length scale, around one energy or length scale, then you can do it by fitting some finite number of parameters to observations.
0: So zoom in on protons and neutrons for a while and they'll keep looking like protons and neutrons. You can describe their dynamics over that range with chiral effective field theory. But then, an EFT will reach its UV cutoff, a short-distance, high-energy scale, at which the EFT stops being an effective description of the system. For example, at a cutoff of 1 gigaelectron volts, chiral effective field theory stops working, because protons and neutrons stop behaving like single particles and instead act like trios of quarks. A different theory kicks in. Importantly, an EFT breaks down at its UV cutoff for a reason. The cutoff is where new, higher energy particles or phenomena that aren't included in that theory must be found. In its range of operation, an EFT accounts for UV physics below the cutoff by adding corrections representing these unknown effects. It's just like how a fluid equation has a viscosity term to capture the net effect of short-distance molecular collisions. Physicists don't need to know what actual physics lies at the cutoff to write these corrections. They just use the cutoff scale as a ballpark estimate of the size of the effects. Typically, when you're calculating something at an IR scale of interest, the UV corrections are small proportional to the relatively smaller length scale associated with the cutoff. The situation changes though when you're using EFT to calculate a parameter like the Higgs mass or the cosmological constant, something that has units of mass or energy. Then the UV corrections to the parameter are big, because in order to have the right units, the corrections are proportional to the energy associated with the cutoff, rather than proportional to the length. And while the length is small, the energy is high. Such parameters are said to be UV sensitive. The concept of naturalness emerged in the 1970s, along with effective field theory itself, as a strategy for identifying where an EFT must cut off and where new physics must lie. The logic goes like this. If a mass or energy parameter has a high cutoff, its value should naturally be large, pushed higher by all the UV corrections. Therefore, if the parameter is small, the cutoff energy must be low. Some commentators have dismissed naturalness as a mere aesthetic preference, but others point to when the strategy revealed precise hidden truths about nature. Nathaniel Craig has been leading recent efforts to rethink that logic. He says the logic works, but that naturalness problems have always been a signpost of where the picture changes and new things should appear. In 1974, a few years before the term naturalness was even coined, Mary Kay Gaillard and Ben Lee made spectacular use of the strategy to predict the mass of a then-hypothetical particle called the charm quark. Craig says the success of Gaillard's prediction and its relevance to the hierarchy problem are wildly underappreciated in their field. In the summer of 1974, Gayard and Lee were puzzling over the difference between the masses of two kaon particles, composites of quarks. The measured difference was small, but when they tried to calculate this mass difference with an EFT equation, they saw its value was at risk of blowing up. Here's Gayard.
2: Well, now there was a new theory called the Glashow Weinberg-Salam theory, and so we decided to calculate these masses in the context of that theory. And that's how we came up with the charm quark mass, because in order to fit the data, the charm quark mass had to take a certain value, a range of values.
0: Because the kaon mass difference has units of mass, it's UV sensitive, receiving high energy corrections coming from the unknown physics at the cutoff. The theory's cutoff wasn't known but physicists at the time reasoned that it couldn't be very high or else the resulting kaon mass difference would seem curiously small relative to the corrections or unnatural as physicists now say guyard and lee inferred their eft's low cutoff scale the place where new physics should reveal itself They argued that a recently proposed quark called the charm quark must be found with a mass of no more than 1.5 gigaelectron volts. The charm quark showed up three months later, weighing 1.2 gigaelectron volts. The discovery ushered in a renaissance of understanding known as the November Revolution that quickly led to the completion of the standard model. Gaillard, who's now in her 80s, recalls that she was in Europe visiting CERN when the news broke.
2: I remember getting a telegram from Ben Lee that said, uh, Charm has been found.
0: Such triumphs led many physicists to feel certain that the hierarchy problem, too, should herald new particles not much heavier than those of the standard model. If the standard model's cutoff were up to near the Planck scale, where researchers know for sure that the standard model fails since it doesn't account for quantum gravity, then the UV corrections to the Higgs mass would be huge, making its lightness unnatural. A cutoff not far above the mass of the Higgs boson itself would make the Higgs about as heavy as the corrections coming from the cutoff, and everything would look natural. Garcia Garcia says that option has been the starting point of the work that's been done in trying to address the hierarchy problem in the last 40 years. She says people came up with great ideas, like supersymmetry and compositeness of the Higgs, that we just haven't seen in nature. Garcia-Garcia was a few years into her particle physics doctorate at the University of Oxford in 2016, when it became clear to her that a reckoning was in order. That's when I became
2: more interested in this missing component that we don't normally incorporate when we discuss these problems with this gravity. So this realization that there is more to quantum gravity than what we can tell, what we can learn from effective theory, and that this could have an impact on the problems of the standard model. I found that something very intriguing. The challenge is to try to connect those insights to the concrete problems we have in the standard model and then really push that all the way to what does that mean for, in light of the plethora of experiments we have, how can
0: we at least probe some of these ideas? Theorists learned in the 1980s that gravity doesn't play by the usual reductionist rules. If you bash two particles together hard enough, their energies become so concentrated at the collision point that they'll form a black hole, a region of such extreme gravity that nothing can escape. Bash particles together even harder, and they'll form a bigger black hole. More energy no longer lets you see shorter distances. Instead, the harder you bash, the bigger the resulting invisible region is. Black holes... And the quantum gravity theory that describes their interiors completely reverse the usual relationship between high energies and short distances. Sergey Dubovsky is a physicist at New York University.
1: Just a fact that gravity is not, like you lose reductionism when you go to Planck scale. So the gravity is kind of anti-reductional. And so I think it will be in some sense unfortunate if this fact didn't have deep implications for things which we observe.
0: Quantum gravity seems to toy with nature's architecture, making a mockery of the neat system of nested scales that EFT-wielding physicists have grown accustomed to. Nathaniel Craig, like Garcia Garcia, began to think about the implications of gravity soon after the Large Hadron Collider's search came up empty. Craig tried to brainstorm new solutions to the hierarchy problem, so he reread a 2008 essay about naturalness by John Judice, the CERN theorist. He started wondering what Judice meant when he wrote that the solution to the cosmological constant problem might involve some complicated interplay between infrared and ultraviolet effects. If the IR and the UV have complicated interplay, That would defy the usual decoupling that allows effective field theory to work. Nathaniel Craig says he just googled things like UV-IR mixing, which led him to some intriguing papers from 1999. Then off he went. UV-IR mixing potentially resolves naturalness problems by breaking EFT's reductionist scheme. In EFT, naturalness problems arise when quantities like the Higgs mass and the cosmological constant are UV-sensitive, yet somehow don't blow up. It's as if there's a conspiracy between all the UV physics that nullifies their effect on the IR. Craig says in the logic of effective field theory, you discard that possibility. Reductionism tells us that IR physics emerges from UV physics, That water's viscosity comes from its molecular dynamics. Protons get their properties from their inner quarks, and explanations reveal themselves as you zoom in, never the reverse. Craig says the UV isn't influenced or explained by the IR, so UV effects can't have a conspiracy to make things work out for the Higgs at a very different scale. Craig now asks if that logic of effective field theory could break down. Perhaps explanations really can flow both ways between the UV and the IR. Craig says that's not pie in the sky because we know that gravity does that. Several new studies of UV-IR mixing and how it might solve naturalness problems refer back to two papers that appeared in 1999. Patrick Draper's recent work picks up where one of the 1999 papers left off. Um, There's
1: been an increase and probably will continue to be a growth of interest in these more exotic, non-EFT-like solutions to these problems. Naturalness is still a problem. It doesn't go away just because the LHC doesn't find something. And because the LHC doesn't find something doesn't mean that it's not there just a bit heavier than what we can reach.
0: Draper and his colleagues study the CKN bound, named for the authors of the 1999 paper, Andrew Cohen, David B. Kaplan, and Ann Nelson. The authors thought about how, if you put particles in a box and heat it up, you can only increase the energy of the particles so much before the box collapses into a black hole. They calculated that the number of high energy particle states you can fit in the box before it collapses is proportional to the box's surface area raised to the three-fourths power, not the box's volume. They realized that this represented a strange UV-IR relationship. The size of the box, which sets the IR scale, severely limits the number of high energy particle states within the box, also known as the UV scale. They then realized that if their same bound applies to our entire universe, it resolves the cosmological constant problem. In this scenario, The observable universe is like a very large box, and the number of high energy particle states it can contain is proportional to the observable universe's surface area to the three-fourths power, not the universe's much larger volume. That means the usual EFT calculation of the cosmological constant is too naive. That calculation tells the story that high-energy phenomena should appear when you zoom in on the fabric of space, and this should blow up the energy of space. But the CKN bound implies that there may be far less high-energy activity than the EFT calculation assumes. That means precious few high-energy states are available for particles to occupy. Cohen, Kaplan, and Nelson did a simple calculation showing that for a box the size of our universe, their bound predicts more or less exactly the tiny value for the cosmological constant that's observed. Their calculation implies that big and small scales might correlate with each other in a way that becomes apparent when you look at an IR property of the whole universe, such as the cosmological constant. Draper and Nikita Blinov confirmed in another crude calculation last year that the CKN bound predicts the observed cosmological constant. They also showed that it does so without ruining the many successes of EFT in smaller-scale experiments. The CKN bound doesn't tell you why the UV and IR are correlated, or why, for instance, the size of the box severely limits the number of high energy states within the box. For that, you probably need to know quantum gravity. Here's Draper's thoughts about the work going on now.
1: It will continue to be an intellectual possibility that somebody's favorite model, even one of the simplest models, is right, and it was just a little bit out of reach. That is a possibility. It's also a possibility that maybe nature is a little more complicated than many of those early models suggested.
0: Other researchers have looked for answers in a specific theory of quantum gravity, string theory. Last summer, string theorists Stephen Abel and Keith Deans showed how UV-IR mixing in string theory might address both the hierarchy and cosmological constant problems. Abel says they were looking at a specific question.
1: If the world is described by a string theory and we know the world is non-supersymmetric, what on earth is happening for things like the Higgs?
0: String theory is a candidate for the fundamental theory of gravity and everything else. It holds that all particles are close-up, little vibrating strings. Standard model particles like photons and electrons are low-energy vibration modes of the fundamental string. But the string can wiggle more energetically as well, giving rise to an infinite spectrum of string states with even higher energies. In this context, the hierarchy problem asks why corrections from these string states don't inflate the Higgs if there's nothing like supersymmetry to protect it. Deans and Abel took into account a different symmetry of string theory called modular invariance. Here's Abel.
1: It's something that is a very old property of number theory. There are modular functions of things that people have been interested in for a long time in number theory. And what it does physically in a string theory is it kind of mixes up very high energy things with very low energy things.
0: So they calculated that. Using modular invariance, corrections from string states at all energies in the infinite spectrum from IR to UV will be correlated in just the right way to cancel out. This keeps both the Higgs mass and the cosmological constant small. As such, the researchers noted that this conspiracy between low- and high-energy string states doesn't explain why the Higgs mass and the Planck energy are so widely separated to begin with, only that such a separation is stable. Still, in Nathaniel Craig's opinion, it's a really good idea. The new models represent a growing grab bag of UVIR mixing ideas. Nathaniel Craig's angle of attack traces back to the other 1999 paper by prominent theorist Nathan Seiberg of the Institute for Advanced Study and two co-authors. They studied situations where there's a background magnetic field filling space. To get the gist of how UVIR mixing arises here, imagine a pair of oppositely charged particles attached by a spring and flying through space. They're perpendicular to the magnetic field. As you crank up the field's energy, the charged particles accelerate apart, stretching the spring. In this toy scenario, higher energies correspond to longer distances. Seiberg and his colleagues found that the UV connections in this situation have peculiar features that illustrate how the reductionist arrow can be spun round so that the IR affects what happens in the UV. The model isn't realistic, because the real universe doesn't have a magnetic field imposing a background directionality. Still, Craig has been exploring whether anything like it could work as a solution to the hierarchy problem. Craig Isabel Garcia-Garcia and Seth Corrin have also jointly studied an argument about quantum gravity called the weak gravity conjecture. If true, they want to know how it might impose consistency conditions that naturally require a huge separation between the Higgs mass and the Planck scale. Sergei Dubovsky at NYU has molded over these issues since at least 2013, when it was already clear that supersymmetry particles were late to the Large Hadron Collider party. That year, he and two collaborators discovered a new kind of quantum gravity model that solves the hierarchy problem. In the model, the reductionist arrow points to both the UV and the IR from an intermediate scale. Intriguing as this was, the model only worked in two dimensional space, and Dubovsky had no clue how to generalize it. He turned to other problems. Then last year, he encountered UVIR mixing again. He found that a naturalness problem that arises in studies of colliding black holes is resolved by a hidden symmetry that links low and high frequency deformations of the shape of the black holes. Like other researchers, Dubovsky doesn't seem to think any of the specific models discovered so far have the obvious makings of a Kuhnian revolution. Some think the whole UV-IR mixing concept lacks promise. To convince everyone, the idea will need experimental evidence. But so far, the existing UV-IR mixing models are woefully short on testable predictions, They typically aim to explain why we haven't seen new particles beyond the standard model, rather than predicting that we should. But there's always hope of future predictions and discoveries in cosmology, if not from colliders. Taken together, the new UV-IR mixing models illustrate the nearsightedness of the old paradigm, the one based solely on reductionism and effective field theory. That may be a start. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Natalie Walchover's full article, A Deepening Crisis Forces Physicists to Rethink Structure of Nature's Laws on our website, quantummagazine.org. Explore more math mysteries in the Quanta book, The Prime Number Conspiracy, published by the MIT Press. Available now at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quantum Magazine Science podcasts and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast.